0: Ladies, welcome back to another episode of the Healthy Hormones for Women podcast. I hope you are doing amazing and that your day is off to an epic start. I woke up today with snow outside. Uh huh. I'm recording this on April 21st and there's freaking snow outside. I was not happy to see it. The weather has been kind of crappy lately. It's actually been totally on and off. Like, I swear we experience all four seasons in a 24-hour period. It's so wild. Like the other day, I'm walking the dog out for a hike, like literally stripping off my clothes because it was so hot and the sun was shining. And then the next day, it's super cold and then it's snowing. Like it's just the wildest thing. So you guys know I'm just not a fan of the snow. I'm really not. And I just cannot wait for more sunshine, consistent sunshine in spring and summer, and oh, it's just the best feeling ever. I thrive during the summer months, like the spring and the summer, and i I think maybe that might be a thing with a lot of women that have like thyroid issues going on. Your thyroid is like the thermostat of your body, so I always feel just crappier in the winter time, like I'm just cold and more fatigued. And I feel like my thyroid acts up more in the winter. And then when I have more of that vitamin D and that sunshine and that heat, like my body totally thrives with it. So I don't know if you've experienced that, if you have any thyroid issues going on, but I've definitely noticed that in my body and and some symptoms that show up. So today, before we dive into our episode, I would—I want to dive into a listener's question that I got, and this is a question I get a lot. We've actually talked about it quite a few times on the podcast, but. Um, It's about intermittent fasting. And so somebody was asking about intermittent fasting. What are my thoughts on it? What happens if you have adrenal or hormone issues going on? And is there anything that I recommend that you can take while you're fasting? And so a few things I want to just talk about, talk around this, because I feel like we get so confused about intermittent fasting. And I also think that, especially in like the keto world, we hear a lot about intermittent fasting, and I find that a lot of people who are on a ketogenic diet are doing intermittent fasting. And so I think there's this confusion that, you know, if you're intermittent fasting, many people are doing it, not everyone, but many people are doing it because they're trying to get into ketosis. So by all means, if that's your goal and you are following a keto diet and all of that, then go for it. If you're trying to stay in ketosis or get into ketosis, then you do want to make sure that you're not, really consuming anything during that time, except for water, um, maybe black coffee. Uh, I think if you have a little bit of like coconut oil or MCT oil, you sh- you should be okay. Like something like that won't kick you out of ketosis. For me personally, I don't do intermittent fasting because I'm trying to get into ketosis. Um, for me, and I don't even know if I would call it intermittent fasting is what I really do. For me, I'm more... I just I fast in the morning, but I still consume things like I might have an elixir or tea or coffee or something like that. Or I might make like a green shake with like the Organifi green juice or use some amino acids like I might do something like that. And mainly that's because I like to work out in the morning and especially on days where I might be lifting heavier weights. I need I need something. I can't have a full meal because it's just so heavy in my stomach when I go to the gym and I just don't love that feeling. Um, so for me, it's just this like fine line of I can't be totally empty and I need to have some energy so that I could lift my weights and like, you know, really get my strength up. Um, but at the same time, I can't have a lot sitting in my stomach because then it will cause like the complete opposite effect and and it, might, it will impair my strength and my digestion and all of that. And I, it just doesn't feel good. So um, for me, what I like to do, there's numerous things that I do. And you can totally try these on for size for yourself, um, whatever works for you. So typically, I might have some energy bits in the morning. I'll drink like a really big glass of water, like 500 mils of water. And then I may have a black coffee. And then I'll pop some energy bits. So energy bits are spirulina. We talk about them a lot. I love them so much. And they're going to give you that energy and they're going to give you omegas and a ton of minerals and nutrients and antioxidants. And so sometimes that alone just satiates me and I'm good and I can go work out. Um, and I might just pop like 10 energy bits. If you buy them in the little packs, there's 30 in a pack. And by all means, you can take all 30 that it's actually dosed that way so that you can take them all. But I just don't, I, I take 10 and then, um, So you can totally do that. And that's one option. Also, I like to, it just really like depends how I'm feeling. I like to have the Organifi green juice. So this is really like one of the best tasting green uh, greens powders on the market. I know it might sound a little misleading because it's called green juice, but it's actually a greens powder and it's really delicious. Like they have a little bit of mint in it. So you get this like nice minty aftertaste. There's... Also, spirulina in here. There's chlorella, moringa, there's beetroot, there's matcha green tea. So it does give you a bit of that energy. There's wheatgrass, there's ashwagandha, which is great for cortisol. It's an amazing adaptogen. And then there's turmeric, lemon juice, and some freeze dried coconut water. And I love that because it's high in electrolytes. Plus, you're going to get that potassium, which is really great for hydrating the body. So sometimes I might mix a little bit of the green juice with like a scoop of some L-glutamine. I like using the L-glutamine from Canprev. Um, L-glutamine is an amazing amino acid that is helpful for muscle cell repair. It's great for the immune system. It's also really great for digestive health and repairing the gut lining. Um, so I love L-glutamine. Um, I might put in some um, tyrosine, Tyrosine is also really great for um, for supporting muscle mass. It's great for the brain. It actually activates different neurotransmitters. And tyrosine is a precursor for thyroid hormones, specifically for T3 and T4. So I might do a scoop of that and just put in some aminos, mix it in with the green juice and shake that up and drink that. And um, I might drink like a little bit of it or like half of it before my workout. And then after my workout, I'll, I'll finish it off. It just kind of depends like how I'm feeling. And some days I have, especially where I am in my cycle, some days I have more energy where I don't need a lot of fuel and other times I need a little bit more and and need to be a little bit more satiated. So that's kind of what I like to do. Um, And so I just kind of go back and forth between that. I also really love the Organifi Harmony. I've spoken about this product before and um, they had it sold out for quite some time, but basically it's their women's hormonal blend. And I think they have it back in stock now. So you can head on over to their site or they actually, I think it's coming in May my bad. I think it's coming in May. So you might have to wait a little bit if you're listening to this in real time. Um, it should be up on their site shortly in a couple weeks. So uh, do check back, but their Harmony is amazing. It's specifically meant for women's hormones and it's helpful for PMS support and for fighting fatigue. It's just great overall for hormonal health. There's um, some cacao. It tastes really delicious. It's just like having a hot chocolate. Um, maca, there's chaseberry, shatavari, ginger, turmeric, And also coconut milk and tastes so good. So some mornings I feel like having that, you know, instead of a coffee, I might have like this hot chocolate. And again, that kind of fuels me. So these are these are things that I incorporate into my sort of fasting routine. And that's just kind of what works for me. And again, it's really just about paying attention to my body and intuitively what I need on, you know. Any specific given day. Some days I might need a little bit more. Some days I'm craving a coffee. Some days I'm, you know, wanting to have my hot chocolate, my harmony, or uh, some days I just want to have some spirulina. You know, like it. It just kind of varies. But these are just sort of the tools that I use, and especially on a training day, they can be really, really helpful because I don't like to train completely empty. I really notice a difference in my strength when when I am lifting weights and. Um, and i love lifting weights and i do encourage women to lift weights because it's it's an amazing way to support bone density for sure and of course you know so many other things with weight management and insulin and all of that so um and then the other thing to keep in mind here too is if you do have underlying adrenal dysfunction going on and even low thyroid function, you really want to be conscious with intermittent fasting. And this is where utilizing some of these products and these ingredients and things like that could be really helpful for you because it's at least giving your body some nourishment. So you may not be doing... You know, intermittent fasting perfectly, but that's okay. You're making it your own. And so, um, if you've got that underlying adrenal dysfunction, you've got lots of stress going on and you're not sleeping well, even if you're just not consuming enough food throughout the day and you're under eating, and then you're adding intermittent fasting on top of that, that's a really big stressor to the body. So, I always encourage women to optimize their hormone health and manage their stress and make sure like you're really on point with adrenal and thyroid health. And then from there, you might want to incorporate some intermittent fasting. And typically with intermittent fasting, you know the window of fasting is about 16 hours and then you're eating in an eight hour window. And maybe you don't need to start with that. Maybe you need to start with a 12 hour fasting window and then bump that to 13 and then 14 and then 15 and just playing around with it. So just really tune in and see what works for you. But I really wanted to answer that question because I get asked it a lot and I think that um, there's there's a bit of confusion around it. Okay, so I hope that clarified a few things and thanks for asking your questions and submitting them. If you have any more questions, you can connect with me over on Instagram at Holistic Wellness Foodie and always submit your questions there. And uh, I love going through them and then kind of compiling them and utilizing them for, for some of our episodes. Okay, so let's switch gears. Let's dive into our episode today. I'm really excited for it. We're chatting about SIBO. We've had this conversation before on the podcast, but this time we're diving into it a lot deeper. And specifically, you know, what are the root causes of SIBO? We talk about bloating and why women get more bloated than men. Uh super common and something I hear across the board with with all of my clients. We also talk about supplementation and what you can really have on your arsenal if you're prone to SIBO. And we talk about nutrition and food and how that can impact SIBO. And then we also talk about the connection between Hashimoto's and SIBO and just autoimmune in general. So lots of amazing insights into our episode today. My guest today is Phoebe Lapine. She is a food and health writer, a gluten-free chef, speaker, and the voice behind the award winning blog, Feed Me Phoebe, named by Women's Health Magazine as the top nutrition Read of 2017. Phoebe's debut memoir, The Wellness Project, chronicles her journey with the autoimmune disease Hashimoto's thyroiditis. She's the host of the SIBO Made Simple podcast and author of the forthcoming book by the same name. Which helps those newly diagnosed or chronically fighting small intestine bacterial overgrowth. Phoebe's work has appeared in Food and Wine, Marie Claire, Self Glamour, Cosmopolitan, and Mind Body Green, who named her one of 100 women to watch in wellness. She lives in Brooklyn, New York with her husband and Beagle. So let's dive in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Phoebe. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm excited to dive in. I know we've got lots to talk about. So before we do that, can you share with our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, So
1: I'm kind of a food woman of many trades, um, but ironically, around the same time that I quit my corporate job to kind of take on all these odd food jobs, catering and private chefing and recipe development and whatnot, Um, I was also diagnosed with Hashimoto's, which we um, chat a little bit about offline, Mm -hmm. but I was diagnosed by just my regular childhood doctor, which is really fortunate since so many women go undiagnosed. Um, But at the same time, she didn't really have like a whole lot of a holistic perspective. So she was just like, it's no big deal. You just, you know, take this drug, you'll be on it for the rest of your life. But again, like no big deal. Mm -hmm. And I was so, you know, immature at the time of 22 that I was new enough, you know, was raised with a mom who was like really into homeopathy and all sorts of alternative stuff that I was like, I'm not going to take the medicine, but then I wasn't mature enough to be like, okay, what else can I do? So I just like, let my, my body run amok for a few years (laughs) until I couldn't ignore it anymore and kind of wound myself down to some sort of rock bottom. And then, you know, it was kind of when my, my food story and my, my illness story kind of dovetailed and I started to. Take back a little bit of the control in the kitchen and started to, you know, dive into all the various lifestyle changes I could make. Um, But then I was found myself being super overwhelmed. that side of the coin, you know, the it was a steep uh, descent from denial into <laughs> overwhelm. And that's kind of how I found myself um, living and then writing my last book, um, which was called The Wellness Project. And it was really just about, you know, taking it one step at a time, facing kind of all the problem areas that come with autoimmune disease from gut health, of course, to sure. hormone balancing, of course, to mm-hmm. liver detox, to just Eating an anti inflammatory diet and finding gentle movement that works and hydrating and, you know, the complete gambit, sleep hygiene and stress management, all of that. You know, it's a really long list when you're first faced with, you know, step one of healing your life. And so, kind of making these changes one month. At a time, one at a time, um, really, really helps me. And I felt like at the time that there was really no book out there that had like a real life story in it. I was always the person who was like really into the introduction of the doctor's book when they talk about, you know, their own health struggles and how they ended up, you know, specializing in whatever form of medicine. For sure. And yeah, I just felt like I wanted an entire book of that. For myself, so I'm in the kind of the, kind of in the business of writing books that I wish I had, had when I was diagnosed with something, and that's kind of how I came to this latest book, SIBO made simple, because um, I had this whole whole onset of new gut symptoms after my last book came out, and having learned all about kind of the conventional microbiome wisdom, I really thought I knew what to do. I was just like. Crushing probiotics and eating a lot of beans and cauliflower and whatnot. And I was just making myself more and more miserable. Mm -hmm. Um, So I know, I don't know if you want to talk about SIBO in a little bit, but that's just my kind of professional, personal (laughs) story in a nutshell.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're going to dive into all of that for sure. We're going to dive into SIBO. Your new book is so beautiful. And uh, I really appreciate you sending over a copy. I've got lots of great recipes that I want to make in there myself. Yeah. So I'm, I love food. I love cooking. I love baking. I love being in the kitchen. So any any recipe inspiration is is always Amazing. great for me. Yeah. So just backtracking a little bit. Okay. So did you like go to school to study for like specifically in the in the recipe space, chefing space or anything like that? No,
1: I am like completely uncredentialed in life. I really <laughs> it's am. It's the best. Like kind. I have no training for anything. <laughs>
0: It's, exper- it's all experiment, uh, experiential, right? Experiential, so, yeah.
1: experimental, for sure. Lots of research. I was, you know, I think uh, I was always very into research papers in high school and college. And I just like continued down that path of just like Amazing. writing my own
0: research papers. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I, I appreciate it. I am not the research type, but I, it has to be part of the job. So, um, so I appreciate you doing that work. And then when you initially had your hash. Hashimoto's diagnosis, was that just because your doctor ran those tests or did you have symptoms that were showing up?
1: I didn't have symptoms. I mean, I'm sure I did, but they weren't kind of classic Hashimoto's symptoms yet. Right.
0: Like you weren't at that like I feel like absolute shit phase. Basically, no.
1: I wound my, <laughs> I found myself there quickly, but I was not. No, and I think that was part of the problem too, and why I was just like, all right, la 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 la, pretend like the conversation never happened, go on living my life. Um, I think I was actually a little bit hyper at the beginning. I kind of, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's not uncommon to kind of yes. switch back and forth. Um, but I went on a trip post-college graduation to Morocco and I got the worst case of food poisoning I've ever gotten in my whole life slash probably a parasite. Mm -hmm. And so that was about nine months-ish before I was diagnosed. So, you know, it was still, I'm sure that was the catalyst and, you know, in the grand scheme of things, that's like pretty early on to like you know, get a diagnosis. I mean, so many women with Hashimoto's have been living with it for years and years and years. Um, So sure. yes, I think I hadn't fully, um,
0: <laughs> yeah, got into my rock bottom yet. Yeah, totally. Totally. I have a very similar story because I caught a parasite on vacation in Cuba in like my mm. mid twenties, mm. but my my rock bottom with Hashimoto's didn't really show up until 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, like it was, it was building, you know, it was building. Yeah. And then that's when I felt my absolute worst. So for sure, I'm sure that parasite was a catalyst for me too. Yeah. Amongst many things. Amongst other things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Amongst <laughs> many things. So, um, okay. So we'll talk about Hashimoto's for sure. But where, where I really want to switch gears is talking about SIBO. Cause I know this is something that you've recently gone through yourself and been dealing with. And of course your whole book is around it too. So before we even dive into like strategies and whatnot, for those who are listening and who are like, I don't really understand SIBO and what it actually is or how you even get it. Can we start there first? And you can expand on that for us.
1: Sure. And if that is you, you're not alone. Even in all my research for the last book, I really didn't come across much about SIBO. And yet it affects so many people. So it stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And, you know, I think one of the big misconceptions when a lot of this science gets kind of like watered down in the wellness space is that you're quote unquote gut bacteria is just everywhere when in reality the majority of it is in your large intestines that's where it's got a role it aids in the digestive process it interacts you know with all these different aspects of your metabolism i mean there are other tons of other functions as well but your small intestines is where you absorb your nutrients so there's not as much of a role for bacteria there's of course you know some there every kind of leg of your digestive labyrinth has its own ecosystem. Um, but you know, it's not designed to withstand kind of these large numbers. Um, and when bacteria are present in too large a number, they compete for your nutrients. So the number one kind of symptom of SIBO is just horrible bloating, um, like bordering on like pregnancy level distension mm-hmm. and gas. So kind of typical IBS symptoms, but usually in, in a pretty extreme way and it's because you know when when those bacteria eat their favorite foods i.e your food, <laughs> your favorite foods yeah. <laughs> um, they release gas and because they're so far from an exit ramp that gas can get trapped and it can kind of force itself you know, via burping out the other end. Um, But more often than not, it just, you know, kind of gets stuck in a really uncomfortable way. For me, actually burping was one of my weird symptoms that kind of got me to the doctor's office. Cause you know, as I mentioned via, (laughs) via the parasite, I've had IBS before and like gut symptoms before, but the burping kind of like at every meal, I was like, "Hmm, this is this is new and different. Um, and then I also like kind of eventually notice I'm like, hmm, I'm bloated all the time. Like no matter what I eat, no matter what time of day, maybe not like first thing in the morning, but like this little pouch just doesn't go away. Um, so that's really common with SIBO. And that's kind of one way to differentiate it from other types of IBS. And by the way, IBS is the most prevalent gastrointestinal diagnosis in the world Um, it affects so many people it doesn't really mean a whole lot there can be over you know 20 different conditions that could be causing these four symptoms of ibs Um, but now new research is saying that The vast majority of all IBS cases are being caused by this issue, this acute issue, SIBO. So it's really interesting. There's is still kind of in its nascency in terms of the research. um, But we're learning more and more every single year about kind of the mechanisms at play, why SIBO happens. And then, of course, you know, luckily, um, some different paths to treatment. Um, But that's kind of what it is in a nutshell. And we can go into, you know, more into the symptoms, more into, you know, what causes this yes. um, one, one cause is actually food poisoning, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of for me, been a really fascinating area because I feel like even learning kind of the bare bones about, you know, your gut microbiome, I didn't fully understand just like kind of the mechanics of my digestive system and SIBO for better or more, <laughs> kind of taught me why things go wrong. Because similar to IBS, it's not like a disease in and of itself. It's just a
0: sign that something right. has gone wrong in the body. Awesome. Well, thanks for that breakdown. I would love to dive into how somebody actually gets it and and the symptoms that that are associated with it.
1: Yeah. So the loading,
0: obviously being a big one.
1: Yes. Um, yeah. there's a really long list of root causes, but they kind of fit into three different buckets. And again, it, it all kind of comes down to how your digestive system is naturally supposed to function. Um, so kind of the one big bucket that we can tie into the food poisoning side of the story is has to do with your motility. So there's this mechanism called the migrating motor complex. And it is kind of this street sweeper wave um, run by your nervous, your nerve cells that make sure that there is no kind of debris left behind after a meal. So your small intestine is huge. It's misnamed. It's very, it's (laughs) narrow, but it's long and winding. It's about the surface area of a football field. And that means there are so many nooks and crannies and possibilities for both food, bacteria, whatever is passing through to kind of just pull off the exit ramp and stay a while. Um, And kind of the one thing that's preventing that from happening is this migrating motor complex, and unfortunately, because it is you know powered by your nerve cells, it's a little bit finicky and a little bit sensitive. So, kind of the big bucket for why people get SIBO is the breakdown of this MMC, the migrating motor complex. Um, and the example of food poisoning is really interesting, um, and I'll get to an, I'll, I'll get to that in a second. But sure. first, you should just know that there are many things that can affect your motility and one of them is stress. You know, I get people who message me all the time and say, "What happens if I can't find my root cause?" And I'm like, "Um, like look at the list. Like I guarantee something will resonate. I mean, stress should resonate <laughs> for most people." Most people. I mean, that was truly my root cause and I have a lot of risk factors obviously and Hashimoto's is one of them, mm-hmm. but you know, my book had just come out. I was on a crazy book tour. I was so stressed out. There's nothing else I could point to more than that as like the catalyst event for me getting SIBO. Cause as I said, I, you know, I was doing a lot of things, right.
0: <laughs> yep. This
1: whole new pack of habits of good habits that I was living every day, but you know, the stress is really corrosive on the body. Um, and then Hashimoto's too. I mean, you need basic nutrients for you know, to keep your gut running on all cylinders, um, B twelve is one of them that powers the migrating motor complex. A lot of people with Hashimoto's are um, deficient in B twelve, and then also the your stomach acid. Your stomach acid is incredibly important for making sure that you know a pathogen doesn't even make it to the small intestines. And Hashimoto's also folks tend to be deficient in stomach acid. Yes. Um, so actually, I'll, before we get to the food poisoning, cause it's all, t- it all ties together, but another bucket <laughs> is kind of this concept of the bacteria is not killed because, you know, of course, even if, you know, your migrating motor complex for some reason falls down on the job, in theory, you know, we rely on these antimicrobial substances in our digestive tract to make sure that unwanted visitors, you know, don't even make it that far. Um, so low stomach acid, just being immunocompromised in any sort of way, um, these things can all, you know, fall under that bucket. Maybe having your gallbladder removed, you're going to be missing those essential bile acids. For sure. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, that's kind of its own bucket. Most people have kind of like one foot in each bucket and the last bucket is, um, some sort of structural issue. So, you know, that can be just like anatomy based, like you're missing your ileocecal valve, which is kind of the back door between the small intestines and the large intestines. That's kind of the only case where you would have any sort of like backflow issue. You know, usually it's kind of an issue from the front end. And then, you know, any sort of abdominal surgery, that's a huge correlator with SIBO. Even a, a really good laparoscopic surgery, you sometimes have this internal scar tissue that forms um, that can make your organs just not function as well or move as freely as they once did. Um, that's a big correlating factor that they've found in research. And then, you know, I'd say. I'm going to say endometriosis as, as one example of like something that's in all buckets, but if you think about it, you know, one of the main interventions is a laparoscopic surgery. But on the other hand, you also have these masses growing outside of your uterus and that puts pressure on your digestive organs. I mean, a tumor, you know, it could be so many different things. And it's one of the reasons I know these are extreme examples and I don't want to scare anyone, but it's one reason why it's so important to look at your root causes again, like the reason why your system's not working properly, because you can miss some potentially like really big issues. If you don't, you know, if you think that SIBO, you know, is the end all and be all, all you have to do is just get rid of the overgrowth and you'll be fine. So, yeah. So Hashimoto's, even that one example and endometriosis being another, you know, you can have a foot in each bucket. And then, you know, food poisoning is a really interesting one because they've found, well, first of all, you know, one would assume that you have some sort of risk factor like low stomach acid that would leave you with food poisoning or make you more prone to food poisoning. But for sure, once that happens, you know, it's usually kind of like a 24 hour to 48 hour experience. But For some people, what happens is your immune system through kind of a case of mistaken identity will accidentally attack the nerve cells of your migrating motor complex as it's trying to attack a pathogen. So, it's a funny thing because most people don't really associate the food poisoning with the SIBO. Because what happens is just slowly over time, when the migrating motor complex gets stunted like that, you know, the buildup starts to happen. So, it usually takes like weeks, if not months, before you start to really feel the impact of that. Um, so, some sort of overgrowth, some sort of SIBO. Um, and at that point, you may have just completely forgotten that you even got food poisoning. <laughs>
0: It's true. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. Thanks for breaking all that down. And then, symptomatically speaking, so obviously, like, yes, bloating, gas, burping can be an interesting one. The thing is, I feel like some people are just like, well, this is normal. Yeah. This is just, you know, I ate too much or, you know, this one food kind of makes me gassy. Like, they don't really see how perhaps it could be actually a chronic issue and not just something acute.
1: Well, if it is sporadic, then that does point a little bit more towards, you know, like a food sensitivity or something else going on. Um, all SIBO is incredibly, like everyone's SIBO is very different from one another, Mm -hmm. partially because, you know, everyone's microbiome is more unique than a fingerprint that is true no matter where Mm -hmm. the bacteria are taking up residence. And it's one reason why, you know, SIBO can be complicated to treat. But yeah, I would say like there are kind of no blanket statements that can be made about the symptom matrix. But I would say if you start to pay attention and you notice that it's like, a frequent occurrence, like every time you eat and higher up in your system, that's more of like hallmark SIBO than just some other type of IBS.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Good. Thanks for pointing that out. And so for somebody listening that is... Um, when it comes to hydrochloric acid. And they're like, well, no, I have heartburn. Or I have acid reflux. Yeah. So I have too much acid. That's not, that's not the cause. I know there's so much confusion here around stomach acid. So maybe we can expand on that a little bit.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there are lots of different schools of thoughts on this. Um, the more holistic side, people will say, well, no, actually the real reason why you have your reflux is because you have too low stomach acid. So it's your stomach trying to compensate and churn up the necessary amount right before the meal, which can release the sphincter and cause some um, some back, backflow into your esophagus. Um, and if you think about kind of all of the clinically proven ways that someone can have low stomach acid, I mean, again, stress is one of them. Mm-hmm. Like That is mm-hmm. a proven fact. So I would just even looking at that list, common sense is like, oh, well, like more people have problems with low stomach acid than, you know, this vast population who have been put on proton pump and inhib- on inhib- inhib- inhibitors because mm-hmm. they're experiencing some symptoms of, you know. Of that phenomenon. So I would say explore it. I know a lot of people who come off of proton pump inhibitors, like have a really hard time and it can be like an adjustment period to sure. then supplementing on the other end with HCL or digestive enzymes. But you can, I would say, just like, don't be afraid to to play around a little bit with it and find like what your threshold is because, you know, the just rule of thumb in the back of your mind should be like, I need stomach acid. <laughs> to have my digestive
0: system working properly. For sure. So what are some of your best tips for improving stomach acid?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if you don't want to do a supplement route, you can just take like fresh lemon juice or apple cider vinegar, just a scant tablespoon and dilute it in a bunch of water, drink it, you know, 15 to 30 minutes before a meal. And that'll kind of signal to your body that it's time to get things pumping downstream. But, you know, kind of the whole philosophy of mindful eating is there to yes. ensure that you know the brain gut connection is running on all cylinders and part of those messaging you know will tell your your body will tell itself you know it's time to get the stomach acid churning um so i would just say like there's so much that comes down to just like really basic like common sense stuff when you approach a meal um you know like taking the time to smell it to pause before you dive in to make sure that you're in rest and digest mode instead of just, you know, carrying on with your, your high, (laughs) high intensity, stressful um, aura and yeah, kind of setting yourself and chewing your food too, you know, just making sure that you set the tone, you know, that saliva does its thing, has its own enzymes in it. But again, there's still like a brain connection happening that makes sure that all your other organs are,
0: are ready to receive. Awesome. Okay. That was really great. So just going back to bloating for a second, why is it that women get bloated more than men?
1: Yeah. It's like well, I
0: never hear a man say, I'm so bloated. I, I like I wouldn't say never, but it is rare.
1: Yeah. Um, well, it comes down to hormones, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and unfortunately, you know, you look at the list of um, well, 75% of all autoimmune diseases are women, 75% of all IBS cases are women. Mm-hmm. And these are, you know, issues that have a lot of overlap, unfortunately. And if you look at the list of, you know, people who are gonna be risk factors for, or at risk for SIBO, or the list of concurrent diseases and illnesses, tons of autoimmune diseases, tons of hormone-related um conditions, including like kind of the example of Hashimoto's. But that's right. a really powerful one, because if you look at the numbers, like, of course, you know, if one in 10 women has endometriosis, one in eight women has a thyroid issue. Um, And I don't know actually what the, what the stats are for autoimmune diseases these days, but, you know, and we have to ask ourselves and science is certainly asking those questions. Like why are women more prone to these issues? I mean, certainly from the immune system standpoint, Covid has been a really interesting, a really interesting conversation that I think has shed light on a lot of questions that the autoimmune community has been asking ourselves for, for a long sure. time yep. about why imu- women's immune systems, for better or for worse, um, can be better at protecting us and then also better at going off the rails and attacking us. So, yeah, I think, I think those numbers kind of speak for themselves, but in terms of what happens with the digestive system, when our hormones go awry, I mean, so many issues that kind of tie into one another. So we can drill down into the Hashimoto's one, which is, you know, if you don't have enough of your active thyroid hormone T3, then again, you're not going to be able to process your B12. You're not going to be able to make enough stomach acid. Um, your liver is kind of where that conversion happens. Most, most women are put on a synthetic hormone that is just T4. Um, so that conversion is so important your liver is part of your gut. It's part of your digestive system. It is like an integral part of your digestive system. So, you know, when people are like, you have to heal your gut, we're not just talking about the intestines. Like we're talking about the liver too, or that really needs support. So, you know, it's interesting since every aspect kind of ties together, like there's a lot of people with, you know, SIBO who have a liver that's struggling. I mean, if you have an overgrowth of bacteria where they're not supposed to be, like there's a lot of inflammation and um, toxins and your own immune system kind of at war, like things taking place that can just, you know, cloud fog up, clog up your other systems. Your liver is responsible for so, 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 so much. Um, so then you know kind of another adjacent issue is estrogen dominance so if yeah. you have estrogen dominance like your liver is definitely going to struggle <laughs> you're also going to struggle <laughs> with your hormone conversion and mm-hmm. all these things kind of just become vicious cycles um i know with hashimoto's too it's like it makes you prone to have a sluggish system again affects your actual motility as well but you know in addition to that you know just constipation is kind of more um where people with Hashimoto's skew on the digestive spectrum and if you're not eliminating properly you're going to be at higher risk for estrogen dominance and just everything becomes a vicious cycle unfortunately we're just such finely calibrated beings and then of course you know there are just a lot of women who have you know, some sort of miscellaneous hormone imbalance that you feel more at certain points of your cycle. Um, And that's something I would pay attention to as well. I know I get messages a lot of the time that say, Hey, like, is your SIBO worse? Like during your period, blah, blah. blah, And I'm like, well, that may not necessarily be SIBO. That could be the fact that your digestive system (laughs) is more distressed in various ways at different parts of your cycle because of various fluctuations in those hormones.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Good point. So for somebody that is considering maybe testing, do you do you recommend testing? How would somebody go about that?
1: Yeah, I do. I think it's really the only way to, to figure out what's overgrowing in your particular system. There's a lot of controversy around how accurate the tests are and they can be finicky. And some people say, oh, they overdiagnose. But at the end of the day, if you look at like the meta-analysis of like various studies across the board, like kind of the consistency is that, you know, a positive breath test does correlate with like a positive, um, treatment plan. So, you know, whatever you want to call it, like obviously the treatments work. So it's important to kind of figure out, you know, figure out whether or not you should be on that path. And I know a lot of people who just, you know, start doing herbs on their own and kind of killing willy nilly only to discover that like, They weren't even doing the right protocol for the kind of overgrowth that they had. Um, So for those who don't know, you know, a SIBO test is a breath test. So it's measuring kind of various gases in your breath, um, which correlate to different types of bacteria that may be overgrowing. So if you have kind of hydrogen levels that surpass a certain threshold or methane levels that surpass a certain threshold. And now a third gas, hydrogen sulfide is also um, testable. Those are all kind of the various types of SIBO that all have their
0: own kind of treatment plan. Awesome. Okay. So does... Should somebody prepare in a specific way to do oh, these yeah. tests? Okay. So <laughs> let's talk They're about that.
1: They're a whole to-do. I mean, you know, it's, I, I hate being like, yeah, you should get tested, yes. but you should. And it's a, it's a bit of a to-do. So how it works is you essentially um, want to eat a very specific diet the day before. It's like white rice and lean protein. And that's it because okay. the idea is that you want to clear your intestinal tract of, you know, any fiber lingering things like that. Um, so if you're prone to constipation or, you know, just like, no, you have a sluggish system. Like you may want to do that prep diet for more than a day. Um, you have to kind of stop certain vitamins and supplements a few days before, um, there's a whole checklist in my book to make sure that you're prepping properly. Unfortunately, it's like, a lot of doctors don't even tell you how to do the test properly before you do it. Um, and then the day you fast overnight and then the morning of the test set aside like about three hours, Oof, about okay. three hours. <laughs> and um, you drink a sugar solution and there are a few different types, but the most popular is called lactulose and Essentially, after drinking the sugar solution, you breathe into these vials at like 15 to 20 minute intervals. And those vials are what get tested back at the lab to see, you know, what the gas content is as the sugar solution slowly makes its way to your large intestine. Interesting. I think it's cool.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it definitely is very interesting. I haven't done the breath test. I, back in 2017 ish, 2018, I, Kind of just went through my own SIBO protocol mm. just because of my Hashimoto's yeah. diagnosis and I had a lot of digestive issues going on at that time too. I was like, I'm just I'm just diving in here. But I'm sure it would have been <laughs> a lot more helpful if I did the test and got a little bit more data, but but I did not do that. So yeah, but that's really interesting. Okay. So what about, and I know this can be so bioindividual, but supplementation in terms of, you know, like what are some supplements that we can have in our arsenal if we're prone to SIBO or I guess not even just supplements, but just strategies and things Mm. in general?
1: Yeah. Well, I'd say, you know, HCL or digestive enzymes for sure. Um, And, you know, digestive enzymes kind of cover a few more bases. A lot of them do have like pepsin or HCL in them already. Um, So I think that's, you know, can't hurt. I know a lot of people Text or message me. They're like, "Well, am I like making my organs <laughs> lazy if I take them?" And I mean, I think the answer is no. You're just like adding, <laughs> right? <laughs> and right. most of us, you know, could use a little help anyway, per all the reasons we've just <laughs> discussed, for sure. Um, so I think yeah, supporting that in any way possible, chewing your food. Oh, I have so many. It's like I don't even know where to start. But I would say for the supplement on the supplement side of things if you're traveling and I know this hasn't been the case for most people for the last year, but like (laughs) maybe everyone's about to plan a vacation somewhere tropical and exotic. But, you know, I would say if you know you're prone to SIBO, you're probably prone to food poisoning. So being as careful as you can be um, when you're putting yourself in a situation that might be more high risk and that goes for, you know, when you're eating at home too. Um, I kind of give the, um, advice to eat like a pregnant person. If you know that you're super prone to food poisoning and it doesn't mean across the board you have to, but you know, I don't take a digestive enzyme every single meal anymore, but if I am going to eat something that again is a bit more high risk, like be it sushi or deli meat or what have you, I'm going to make sure to do everything that I can to set my gut up, including, you know, taking the digestive enzymes, um, and supporting myself that way. In terms of like, kind of like everyday supplements, besides that vitamin D is kind of my go-to. It's just mm-hmm. good for so many things. It can help heal leaky gut, which is like a huge downwind side effect slash symptom of SIBO. And it's right. why, you know, in addition to the symptoms that we mentioned earlier, there's a lot of autoimmune symptoms kind of on the spectrum of SIBO, um, you know, from joint pain, brain fog, what have you, you know, what happens is the bacteria can eat through the very thin mucus lining in your small intestine. Because again, it's it's not designed to have a lot of bacteria on the other end. And that can then lead to messing up your tight junctions and then your immune system getting involved because now they're exposed to the bacteria and then they start killing the bacteria and then maybe the bacteria leak out into your (laughs) bloodstream and cause systemic inflammation, you know, all sorts of fun stuff like that. Um, so vitamin D it's good for so many reasons. Um, one of them is just like healing that permeability. And it's also a good immune modulator, you know, SIBO and the immune system, like, even what I just mentioned is very much goes hand in hand dysfunction with one dysfunction with the other. And like, they can be kind of this like self-perpetuating cycle, um, like with autoimmune diseases that overlap with SIBO, it truly is like a chicken or the egg thing that no one can quite pinpoint. Um, in terms of other practices, um, one huge one that I'm very, very passionate about is meal spacing. And that's not intermittent fasting. It's, just spacing out your meals and not snacking as much, and the reason for that is just having to do with how the migrating motor complex functions, and it only kicks in during a fasting state of ninety minutes or more, um, because its whole purpose is to again like clean up after a meal. So if you're snacking all the time, even if it's you know like healthy like a carrot stick, some almonds, um, you're going to be preventing your body from kicking into gear and. Doing those necessary chores. Um, So I know a lot of people, a lot of SIBO amigos have been really (laughs) helped by just the concept of meal spacing, just trying to go at least three hours even four or five between meals and just like giving the snacking a break for a little bit. And it's not, you know, I know a lot of people have blood sugar issues, certainly people with some hormone imbalances. It's not always possible, but it's something to to keep in mind and to work towards, I think.
0: Yeah, no, I love that tip. I'm a big proponent and something I speak about a lot in our community is no snacking. Yeah. Um, you know, the more frequently you eat, the more you spike your insulin, the more you can cause blood sugar issues. And then Again, from a digestive perspective, like you're just not giving yourself that that rest and digest period. So, yeah. um, I know snacking and grazing can be a tough one to give up yeah. for people, but it really can just lead to such tremendous symptom relief for sure. Yeah, yeah, awesome. So, what about foods specifically? I mean, I know so many people are just confused when it comes to food and yeah. what they should eat if they have SIBO. Or, you know, do they have to be conscious about avoiding certain foods? And like, where does that play a role in all of this?
1: Yes. So obviously can't talk about healing the digestive system without talking about food. Right. However, diet is not a treatment for SIBO. Um, it's, I think kind of like a supplemental strategy that can help you reduce symptoms and it's very effective at helping you reduce symptoms. Um, but you know, the diets that are primarily for SIBO slash IBS are incredibly restrictive. Um, they either eliminate like kind of all carbohydrates, like starchy carbs, whatnot, or they take this low FODMAP approach, which is removing kind of certain carbohydrates that maybe you wouldn't even think about as carbohydrates there are a lot of like green vegetables and really healthy foods and fruits on there. Um, but they contain, you know, certain carbohydrates that tend to be, and fibers um, that tend to be kind of your bacteria's favorite foods. So- when you take them away, you know, assuming that the bacteria are in the wrong place, you're going to feel some symptom relief. And that's really important because, you know, the gas itself can be really inflammatory. Um, So to me, like the ideal is finding some sort of happy medium, because if you reduce your diet too much during treatment, you may risk that some of the bacteria just kind of go into hibernation and you won't be kind of killing them as effectively um, because the treatment plans are kind of like kill phases. Um, But on the other hand, you don't want to be, you know, eating things that are going to be making you so miserable that on top of, you know, maybe some of the die-off symptoms of the bacteria actually like releasing their own toxins as they are killed, that you're feeling all these uncomfortable digestive symptoms on top of it. So, um, you know, there's some, doctors who say, you know, eat whatever you want during treatment and then do one of these diets afterwards to kind of, you know, help yourself, give your gut a little bit of a break and time to heal. Other people are just like, well, you know, try one of these diets during, but like do it in more broad strokes. Like don't be too rigid about it. And I think that's kind of the best mentality anyway, because the misconception with SIBO is like, if you're, you know, super diligent and rigid about this low FODMAP or quote unquote SIBO diet, then you're going to make your treatment work that much better. And it's just not the case. Um, I think people kind of forget that treatment is very different from healing and oftentimes treatment in of, in and of itself can cause more damage and require <laughs> more healing. So it's kind of up to you how you want to structure those two phases and overlap them, but I would just keep the expectation that um, you know, whatever diet you do choose is is therapeutic and not, you know, part of the actual kill protocol.
0: Got it. Okay. yeah, that totally makes sense. So what about, you know, I've heard a lot about don't take probiotics and don't drink kombucha and don't have sauerkraut or kimchi, like fermented foods. Where does yeah. that play a role?
1: So, I mean, it's kind of twofold. People with SIBO tend to be more reactive to those things. Um, the not taking probiotics is primarily because, you know, most people with SIBO have some sort of blockage or motility issue. So, if you add kind of the same types of bacteria that are already overgrowing and like you, potentially are not moving them through into where they're meant to end up, which is your large intestines, you could be adding like fanning the flames of the fire. Um, So most doctors will tell you to just not take any probiotics during treatment until you've resolved your SIBO. Um, However, there are treatment protocols that do involve probiotics, but they're very specific ones. And, you know, you would really want to work with a doctor who's very savvy on that front in order to to treat your SIBO in that way, most people just you know kind of segue after treatment to use you know probiotics again to try to make sure that you know you're not causing too much damage to your large intestine and you start to build up those populations again. Um, but in terms of the fermented foods, you know, kind of the most common reactivity issue with SIBO is the histamine or the mold or yeast content in these foods and it said that over 50% of people with sibo have an overlapping issue with either fungus or yeast overgrowth because if you think about it you know the exact same reasons those same buckets why bacteria would overgrow I mean, it's the same reason why any opportunist would overgrow, um, things not getting killed coming in and then <laughs> not getting moved through quickly enough. So, um, it's not uncommon to be very sensitive to mold and yeast containing foods. If you have that type of overgrowth and then, you know, a second kind of overlapping issue is histamine intolerance. Um, and that's kind of an under appreciated, you know, under, I don't know. It's not known about as much as some of these other things, but, um, with SIBO, you know, bacteria kind of has its own histamine content. Um, and our body, by the way, you know, similar to, us naturally having bacteria and yeast, like we naturally have histamine, we use it for all of these bodily functions. It's only when, you know, certain levels get topped out that we can have some sort of dysfunction around it. Um, So one of the reasons why those levels might top out is because you have this population of (laughs) critters with added histamine. um, And if there's damage to to your villi and your intestines, you're not going to be able to make, um, the enzyme that kind of breaks histamine down and keeps the levels even. So, sorry, this is all long way of saying that (laughs) fermented foods, any sort of aged foods are high in histamine. Um, you get a lot of histamine through your diet as well. So that if you're someone who's reactive to that and you have SIBO, it could be the histamine. or the molds, or any of these things. Anyway, I would just take it out to be safe and then add it back in afterwards.
0: Yeah, awesome. All right, well, thanks for that breakdown. That was really great. I would love to switch gears these last few minutes and just chat about Hashimoto's, your experience with Hashimoto's. Obviously, SIBO and digestive issues was like a big symptom that kind of arose for you. And outside of that, was there anything else that was really showing up?
1: Oh, <laughs> you yeah. can't see her I mean, face, guys, but her eyes
0: just was like, "Whoa, oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah." So I love for you to talk about it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I really did wear myself down to a rock bottom at the beginning. Like of course the crushing fatigue. Um, I like literally had to stop exercising because I would like try to go for a run and I just have this horrible cramp. Of course I hadn't changed my diet or anything. I was just like eating everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had horrible insomnia, like really bad night sweats, my thermostat, you know, like, that's, oh, that yeah. is the thyroid, but my thermostat was so off. I mm-hmm. remember just like walking up the subway stairs and having to like rip off my jacket in the middle of winter. Cause I was having like a menopausal hot flash. I was like 24. Um, And let's see what else my skin was a huge issue. I had um perioral dermatitis, which was like a recurring theme of my teens and twenties. And eventually it just would it wouldn't go away. Like no matter what I did, no matter what cream or antibiotic that I took, it was just getting worse and worse and worse. So that was actually kind of what my turning point was with Hashimoto's because, you know, vanity. I was like, I need to figure this out. Yep. I'm like trying to think if I missed anything. Um, oh, I, I had really bad B12 <laughs> deficiency. So the numbness and like the feet and hands, like that was big for me too.
0: Yeah. For me, it was a lot of pains in my hands and my wrists and whatnot. Mm. And I also like, I had a hard time with like gripping things. And I also know that it's related to if I overdo it with eggs or even like oats mm. or just grains in general, those, those symptoms come back for me. Mm. So yeah, I have to really like space out and, and have variety and not just Mm. keep eating the same things over and over and over again. Mm. Um, so I include eggs and, and oats, but just, just on occasion. So, um, so then in terms of like, okay, so all these symptoms showed up for you, what was those, those first few steps that you took to really healing?
1: (sighs) well, I took out gluten. That was the first thing I took out. That was kind of like first step, did an elimination diet, like saw like firsthand that gluten was the big issue. I'd always thought I was lactose intolerant, but I was just like, you know, eating creamy pasta and <laughs> cheese in my pizza. <laughs> and right. like that. Um, and eventually, you know, I stopped eating as much dairy too, but I'd kind of like weeded that out a little bit already. And to this day, you know, I, I'm just not that symptomatic when I eat dairy. I know it's like, you know, not the best thing like for my system from an anti-inflammatory standpoint, but I just don't struggle with it in the same way. Mm -hmm. Um, But gluten's kind of been my only dietary hard line. Um, I don't eat like a ton of soy. I eat like tamari and miso, but I don't eat like a block of tofu or or anything anymore, like a bowl of edamame, just kind of limited the soy a bit. Um, But no, I mean, I, I try and, Same as you, like keep as much diversity in my diet as possible, especially having been through the rigmarole of low FODMAP and SIBO and all that. For Um, sure. But in terms of kind of the first steps, that was it. And then I really did hit a wall, even like the gluten, like kind of took me up to like a higher plateau. And then I was still just having, you know, like a million nutrient deficiencies and just like my blood work was like a malnourished child. It was really bad. Um, So the first thing I did like in the wellness project that I write about is I took out caffeine, alcohol and sugar for a month just to help my, my liver get back on track. And honestly, that was the first thing that caused my perioral dermatitis to go away and it's wow. never come back which is amazing. insane amazing you no know, it's just like it's it's amazing too because like sometimes you just need to get out of your own way like totally at the time i was like i was taking so many supplements i was just really exhausted by the holistic medical approach in addition yep. you know it was like better than western medicine of course cuz they were you know it was more thoughtful but it was also just extreme and in, in an unrealistic way, in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And so, just taking, like, stopping my supplements and just like getting out of my own way and letting my liver take a freaking vacation totally was amazing. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I come back to again and again. I have kind of my own program called four weeks to wellness. That's kind of based on, um, some of my biggest learnings from the book. And we do a mini vice detox for a week. And it's always like people's takeaways are so powerful, like both physically and emotionally, but mainly physically, like it's incredible what you, what you'll see, you know, if you just let your liver, do its thing. And it's not permanent. You know, everything I did for the wellness project was not gimmicky. Like I, again, was in my twenties. So like I brought back all those things in moderation, but, you know, having that really extreme, really difficult first challenge, like really motivates me even now, you know, when I'm feeling run down, I'll just like take those three things out and see what happens. And sometimes, you know, I think we can really complicate it for ourselves. we we'll are be like, oh my God, I have to do whole 30. I have to, you know, like yes. go AIP. And like, in reality, like they're like kind of everyday vices, like sugar being a huge one that if we just dial back a little bit mm-hmm. or just like take a short break, things can really turn around for us.
0: <laughs> yes. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I talk a lot about like the foundation Stuff, you know, yeah. that also a lot of things like with sleep and going outside for walks in nature, like things that we mm. that are free that yeah. we neglect. And I'm all for supplements and whatnot, but they're supplementary, you know. Yeah. We get to this point where it's like we're taking all of these things and it's like, oh, nothing's working. And it's like, but let's take a few steps back and look at all the, all the lifestyle stuff that, you yeah. know, you are or aren't, or aren't implementing. Totally hmm And so do you, are you conscious of like tracking your antibodies and, you know, being on top of that? I am. The antibodies have
1: been a struggle for me. Like mm-hmm. nothing I do will get them completely down. And I think it's just because I'm a nervous system person. Like it's just, and because again, I let things rage for a long time. I think if I had, you know, done the things that I've done over the years, like, you know, early on and not let myself like run a muck in the same way, right. like maybe like remission would have been possible for me, but it's not. And like I just want to say that openly because it's not a failure. It's not something to to worry about. Like my quality of life is pretty good. Like I don't totally. have any of those symptoms anymore, and my antibodies yeah. are sometimes at four hundred, sometimes they're at three thousand. Like literally, a little bit of stress can just send me up there, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and. Yeah. And sometimes, even when they're at 3000, honestly, my symptoms aren't that bad because I'm kind of calibrating everything else um, properly. But I'll just say that for people, you know, I wouldn't get overly obsessive about them. Of course, like it is, you know, a huge part of the battle and you don't want to be at 3000 for like an (laughs) extended period of time. But, you know, I've interviewed a lot of doctors on my podcast over the years and some who are like pretty Hashimoto savvy are like, Anything below a 500 is a clinical win for us. You know, anything below that, like, let's just stop stressing about it Mm -hmm. and, like, live your life. If all the other numbers are looking good, like, totally, let's count that as a win.
0: Yeah. I so appreciate you sharing that because I, you know, in the beginning phases... You get your numbers and you know, you get your initial diagnosis, and you're just like, Oh my God. And yeah. I've learned now over the years of really diving into Hashimoto's and you know, just really having my experience with it and coaching hundreds of women through it. It's like your antibodies, just like your TSH, it kind of is a moving target. It's yeah. going to go up and down. You could test it today, you could test it tomorrow, yeah. you can, t- and, and it's going to be different. And
1: Cause your immune system can turn on a dime.
0: Like your Absolutely. immune system is
1: fluid. And like, again, like it can be impacted by stress. It can be a, like, maybe you came into contact with a chemical. You didn't know, yes. you know, it's, we exactly. can't control our environment and
0: live in a bubble. So yes. we're not going to always be able to control our immune system. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the important thing is too, is like, you have the awareness and this goes for everybody. It's about having the self-awareness that when you don't feel well, regardless of what the labs are saying, be proactive and address that. Yes. And if the labs are showing differently and you feel great, that doesn't mean now Oh, it all just goes to shit. And I'm just going to, you know, neglect myself and my diet, my self care. No, like you still dial in on those things. But I just think it's, yeah, it's that self awareness, you know? Mm. And so uh, I really appreciate you sharing that because I know that there's a lot of women that get really hung up on the antibodies. And I have this conversation with my clients all the time is like, let's just talk about how you're feeling. That's yeah. what, that's what matters. Well,
1: cause it can become another obsession. And I know it was for me early on. Mm-hmm. I was just really struggled with like, why can't I get them fully down <laughs> and you just have to
0: let go at a certain point. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. That was such a great conversation. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your book? And sure. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. So it's called SIBO Made Simple and
1: it's kind of like hybrid cookbook and like full guide to SIBO. Like seriously, I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, but there's a lot of money you can spend on SIBO and like this $24 will be the best (laughs) that you've ever spent because it really does walk you through everything you need to know, like from beginning to end, even if you're not sure about SIBO and like not sure if you should get tested, like it'll walk you through that whole process and help you troubleshoot the pros and cons. And then my other book, The Wellness Project, which I don't even really talk about that much anymore, but was very relevant to this conversation um, is kind of like a My Life as a Guinea Pig wellness memoir with a lot of, you know, practical tips built into it, but also SIBO made simple. I talk a ton about Hashimoto's too, because obviously it applies to me and interests me. So there's a lot in there about kind of the
0: connection with the gut and Hashimoto's. Awesome. Well, that's amazing. The book is very comprehensive, so I definitely recommend it. We will put all of the links in our show notes for our listeners and where can they connect and find you? Yes. So I'm at
1: feedmephoebe.com where there's tons of free recipes and some, you know, intro info on SIBO. You could also find my podcast, SIBO Made Simple, there. And then for the book, you can just go to SIBOMadeSimple.com and there's links to all the retailers. And let's see, then there's the wellnessproject.com too, which is where I house actually the course I mentioned, Four Weeks to Wellness, and um, a few free guides, including one for low FODMAP cooking that has been really helpful for people people who are trying to figure that
0: part out. (laughs) Amazing. Awesome. Well, we'll have that all in the show notes. Thanks so much for your time and for being with us today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thank you, ladies, for tuning into our episode today. I really hope you learned a lot. And if you have any women in your life that can benefit from today's episode, somebody that you know that might be dealing with some digestive issues and gut health issues and specifically SIBO, we'd love for you to share this episode with them. And if you wanna grab our show notes, head on over to the website, holisticwellness.ca forward slash episode 150, that's 150. Now, during the intro of our episode today, I was talking about energy bits, and Organifi and Canprev products. And I want to share our coupon codes with you. If you would like to get your hands on some spirulina or chlorella from Energy Bits, head on over to their website, energybits.com. Use the coupon code healthyhormones and you can save 20% off site wide. And with Organifi, if you'd like to get your hands on some green juice powder or their Harmony blend for women's health or any of their products, head on over to organifyshop.com. The coupon code is also healthy hormones and you can save 15% off store wide. And with Canprev, we don't have a direct place to send you to, to order their products specifically, but they are available across Canada in your local health food store. And if you are in the U.S., you can probably find them online and they do ship, certain websites do ship to the U.S. So naturesource.com, naturalnutrition.com. These are some great sites to check out and you can get your Canprev products there. And they also have a lot of those websites have some really great discounts on Canprev. So just keep your eye out if you're looking to get your hands on them. That is where I often use my L-glutamine, my tyrosine, L-glycine. There's a lot of great amino acids that they have that I love to put in my shakes, specifically around my workouts. So again, thank you so much for tuning in. I'll chat with you all next week.